0: History. Uh, lecture number 68, Abed Laiweiss. Uh, we talked about the Mishnah, and um, the Mishnah is the most authoritative source of the Tenayim, um, this is in your eyes, Have that better? Uh, it's the most authoritative, but we know that it was just the, as, as it were, the Tenayim's greatest hits. It's what Rebbe selected as the most important central ideas, but there were a lot of other ideas that were still out there floating, and they were external, hence the term Beraysa. Bar means outside. So a Beraysa is an external source, external to the main central sources, but um, pretty authoritative, meaning really just one notch down and um, uh, vital in terms of all of our learning. Yes? Besides the Tosefta, which you're going to talk which about. Which we're about to, is, is the next topic is the Tosefta, is the more authoritative of the Bryces, right. but in addition, to a bunch of other Bryces. But are Bryces scattered or are they. Correct, meaning, meaning they're out there and they're taught in the Gemara. Uh, and they're interesting. There were amoraim whose expertise it was to teach certain Bryces. If you remember Gemara Shu, the other day, I mentioned that Rabbi Yitzchak knew whether there was a, an, it was whether this brice was authentic or not. He had a certain, and if they, if they had the, the amoraim were certainly authorized to determine what is a legitimate brice and what's not. Sometimes, since then, I even saw in the Gemara that, and uh, in, in also in Sanhedrin, that the um, sometimes they, as it were. He doesn't invent a b'raisa, but they say it must be a b'raisa. So the Tosefta was compiled, um, and perhaps the same machlokus. You know, Rambam says that the, the Mishnah was single-handedly done by Rebbe, and the post came generally follow Rav Shira Goon. That he no, he put it all together, decided the authoritative format, but didn't do it alone. Um, ostensibly, the same thing can be said about Revi Chia and Revi Yoshaia who are two colleagues of Rebbe, junior colleagues. Rebbe was certainly the, the, uh, the, the, the greater authority, but important figures. The uh, Gemara tells us about their bryces in Tosefta that any brysa that they didn't teach is mishubheshes, is somehow, well, the term really means corrupt, but it can't be that, because we know that there are a lot of bryces out there that did not make it to the Tosefta, but are quite legitimate and authoritative, and we derive all kinds of halachas, but... The Gemara may be speaking in Lashon Guzman, an exaggerated um, uh, uh, prose in order to convey the importance and the, and the, the authority, relative authority, of the rices in the Tosemda. Um, yeah, I, I, there they said, don't bring such things to the base medrash, which probably also is, a, is an exaggerated language to talk about the primacy of Rabbi Chi and Rabbi Yoshaya. I have a lot to say about Revi Chia and less about Rebioshaya just for the for the record for the record just because I don't necessarily comment extensively about Atana or Namora doesn't necessarily mean that they're not so prominent I to the best of my ability I try to give well, the, well, I try to give prominence to those who played a more significant role, and much like and there's going to be subjectivity to that, much like in the um, charts I passed that, I, I owe you a chart too, now that we're entering the Amuraim, I can give you the flip side of the Amuraim chart from Ravarya Kamel, but just like he puts some of the names in larger bold-faced prints, as you can see here, thanks very much, Barak. Right, the Rabbi Rabbi Rabbi, Rabbi and Zakkai, Rabbi Akiva appear central and bold phrase, which is a subjective call though, not such a stretch. Pretty makes sense but might make sense that they were quite authoritative, and others are in let's say finer print, uh, were in less prominence, so maybe that's reflected here, maybe not. Um, I, I, I certainly don't have the uh, status to be able to determine, but to the best of my knowledge, I, I try to give I give relative weight. Rabbi Oshaya is well known for several reasons. The, 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 the one comment that we make about him is that he taught what's called the Yud Gimel Avos Nezikin. There are 13, even though it does start, <coughs> the famous first Mishnah in Baba Kama talks about Arba Avos Nizikin. that there are four Avos Nezikin. Rabbi O'Shai actually elucidated 13 categories, and that's a well known bit that comes up later in the same Gemara in Baba Kama. Rabbi Chia, say it again, elucidated, he, he um, clarified. Lucid is clear, so elucidating is to clarify. Rabbi Chia initially came from Bavel and he came up to Eretz Israel around the time that we've been talking in. That, that around the, we would presume, the end of the 2nd century, the time of Rabbi Uda Nasi's uh, uh, base medrash in Beit Sharin and then later in Sipori. He and his sons, um, some of his sons are famous, one of his sons is named Chizkiah, who, um, whose base Medrash is mentioned in the Gemara, Debe Chizkiah comes up sometimes. So that's Chizkiah ben uh, Rabbi Chia. Rabbi. They have something pretty significant. The Gemara about Metziah tells us that he and his sons are equated to Ezra in his generation and Hillel in his generation as, as it were, restoring the Torah. And here too, it's probably exaggerated, it's Lashon Guzman exaggerated praise to, but somehow they did something. They worked out, and I'll explain what it is, they worked out a system of transmission of Torah that was so effective in preserving it that they're given credit for preserving Torah, or restoring Torah, as it were. And this is the system. He would teach, with, with the assistance of his sons, he would teach, he would gather the schoolchildren, and he would divide them up. And he said, you're Vreshis, and you're Shmos, and you're Ha'ikre. And he singled out five kids, each one for a separate chumash. That's your project. You're going to master it. He then took six other kids and said, "Zman Nakat, Your you your moed, your nashim, your you uh, we, we said we said Kodshim um, and taharos." And each one of them had the job to single to focus in, to hone in, and get that one area. Then, very logically, they would teach one another. But each one had his niche, had his expertise. And this became the basis of transcribing the entire Talmud. Which, keep in mind, it's still oral; it's growing, it's immense, and overwhelming. So if you divide the conquer, it's effectively delegating Torah learning as a way of preserving the Torah learning. A massive task, to the point it was such, such a great undertaking that Chia began and was continued throughout the time of the Gemara. Rebbe praises uh, Rabbi Chia, he says How great are the acts of Chia Rabbi Chia, uh, who, who uh, very painstakingly takes on this educational project of preserving all of the Torah uh, but he's a great figure and I'm just going to mention a few little pieces of it his, um, his kever is one that um, I like to guide when I have the opportunity we passed it, we didn't go there though um, it's, just, it's just down from Rabbi Akiva's. it's sitting right over the city of Tavaria. Uh, in one story we find Rebbe sitting with all of the chachamim around his table eating and or you know what no 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 no. he's learning he's learning not eating Uh, and then he smells and you know you're not allowed to learn Torah or say a bracha or say or or say shriyashma if there's a bad smell and there was a bad smell Rebbe looked up and said who's eating garlic and Rebbe Chia got up and left the room, even though he was not the one eating the garlic Meaning, and then after he left, all the other medium got up and they followed suit, presumably including the guy who, who ate the garlic. And this way, Rabithiya preserved the man's dignity. Wait, uh, it's a story, hold th- up uh, a second, just a second, hold for a second, just Daniel. It's a story that actually repeats itself in history. They learned it from previous generations. Rebbe he actually got it from Rebbe Meir. Similar story. Who got it in turn from Shmuel Akatan? Uh, and there are others in the Gemara and Sanhedrin that are also credited with this uh, ability to save face and preserve somebody else's dignity. The question really comes up: What was Rebbe doing? Why did Rebbe, in theory, publicly, you know, potentially publicly embarrass? That's the part she wanted to pick that up. It's, well, it's like, uh, Shmuel with story I with did tell the story of Yeshua Yeah, the wedding. Oh, right. With the with yeah, I did tell the story. Correct, correct, right. So that what goes around comes around, and we 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 take the rap. That's 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 what we do. We I, I don't mind being publicly humiliated myself if it means I can save somebody else's dignity. He davened Rebbe but not just any old tefillah The uh, story about the Metzia tells us that he and his sons were davening, and in the heavens they said, "What's going on?" There's about to be, their davening is so stark, they're about to bring about the amesim, the revival of the dead. That's not supposed to happen yet, but they're davening too well. And so, well, they, in heaven, they do the logical thing under the circumstances. Under the circumstance, Elia, they send Elia Novi, the go-to man. Elia Navi comes and appears to them as a bear. And they said, ah! And they were distracted in their davening, and thereby amesim didn't happen. But clearly the Gemara is conveying to us a lot of things, including the power of one individual's tefillah, tf- especially if that individual happens to be Rebichiyah. In the Gemara we learn that um, his wife had excruciatingly painful labors, very hard for her to give birth. And she didn't like it one bit, this mothering business. So she disguised herself, and apparently it was a really good disguise because her husband didn't recognize her, and that was the point. She goes into Rebichiyah with a Shailah. And she said, "Rebbe." <laughs> Trying to disguise her voice, she says, uh, "Is a woman obligated in pravu? Women have to uh, the first commandment, uh, the first commandment in the Torah. At least uh, she had to reproduce." And the answer, of course, is no. Uh, You've heard me say this before. I, I, you know, the answer is no. Women are not obligated. I personally find them very helpful, but they're not technically obligated in that. Um, And so she takes this as a psak halacha, as a psak halacha. And then goes about without asking her husband's permission, which was not okay. Not allowed to do this. Don't get any ideas it, you know, don't, don't tell your wives this one and then go they'll get out of it. So she drinks an infertility drug. So she doesn't have to have babies anymore. When he finds out what she's done, he says, um, that's okay. She'll have more babies. She does. Twins. Ouch. You try to you, you know Try to play I around try to with, with a shaman with man. mitzvahs, right? You know, mess mess around with shalom and um, the Gemara also tells us that she is um, she's not a nice person she makes his life miserable and um, his response to her is to be extremely kind and he brings her all kinds of gifts and she responds by being a shrew, she's miserable she's terrible to live with and one of his, his nephews his great student, Rav asks Rabbi Chia, he says "Rebbi, uncle what do you, remember, remember? how Rob is um, nephew? Remember we saw that in our Gemara in the first paragraph of Machos. So he says, "Remember Rabbi Chia, that whole thing." Right, so, so he says, what, why are you so nice to her? She's terrible." So Rabbi Chia says this great line, and I think I said it just now in the marriage chabura too. He says, "This is a great principle of marriage: Dayenu shemigadlos benenu umatzilos osanu It's enough, and he's speaking for all married men that they um, raise our our children and they save us from sin. Anything else, if she happens to make a nice uh, chicken salad, well, that's just, you know, that's just extra credit. But I don't expect anything from my wife, enough that they raise our children and save us from sin, and the rest is just is, 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 is a freebie, is, is, is a nice thing. It's a good attitude that you should go into with marriage, and Leah teaches us. It's Rabbi who teaches us another principle that we've quoted earlier this year, that even though there's no more Dalit misos basing, we don't, uh, the, the, there's no Sanhedrin, there's so you can't execute. Uh, we don't have the four capital punishments. Uh, the four misos still continue. Kodesh Barfel is an incredibly important principle. Even though there's no capital punishment, so a person we know who is chayed skila which is the machlokis, but let's say chachamim, the skila, that stoning is the most serious kind of, um, of, of, of a capital punishment. Um, so today a person can um, fall off a building or alternately, uh, right, he can smash, he can, he can be hanged. It's not just about the punishments that Beistin meets out. It can't be. HaKadosh Baruch we call the dayan Emis. He's the true judge, and everybody gets what they possibly can. Beautiful piece in the Lave Lopyan, Rav Ravari Lopyan, he, he writes this, he says, you know, a rich man, it's the same, it's the same setup as the property that Nelson gives David, a rich man who steals from a poor man, and a poor man who steals from a rich man, it's both theft, and they're both high of the same punishment of keffel, they have to pay double back. But the rich man did something so much more cruel, so much more inhuman. He stole from that poor man. He had plenty. He didn't need it. And he stole from the poor guy. Yeah, that aspect, aspect of the crime a Kodosh takes care of. I ask yes, then, why do we even need human basting? Why do we even need punishments by human agency? And the answer is, without those, we would have anarchy. So we never have to worry about justice. And I don't know about your other shiurim, but by us in the morning, I think Aaron, you were with me. So we talked about this. I think he, I can get you in the class at the time. But in Makos, this question comes up too. No? What if the guy gets off the hook? What if the What if of, what the guys render? You know, there are the Hakasha, the AD, the whole testimony is thrown out. What a potentially guilty man <laughs> might walk. And the answer is the answer is yeah, because Baruch still judges. We need human at awake- but but it doesn't mean that that's the source of ultimate justice. Okay, Rebbe a little bit more. Um, Rebbe Chia teaches us in, in, in the Medrash and Brachiyos Rabbah, don't make a siag yosimina ikar, don't be too machmir. When the chumra, your stringency is gonna mess you up sometimes. And he brings the example. It's a famous famous bit. He brings an example from who was early on in history, way too machmir, and it messed them up. Think far back in history. It caused not only sin, Adam it caused the him. sin. Before him, Adam? Before him oh. Chava. Oh. No, wait, wait. She tells the snake, "Oh, look at Rashi there. She tells no, the Nachash, she, that, she right? says, Hashem said, um, we're not allowed to touch yeah, the tree. Yeah, but I but Adam, Hashem didn't Adam, say Adam, that. Yeah, Adam, Adam, told her. Adam told her. No, but the, she's credited with having done that. So she said, We're not allowed to touch the tree. So the, the snake thinks, Oh, I got her now, because that was not the for The missus was not to eat from the tree. He pushes her into the tree. She touches it and she sees, Hey, that wasn't so bad. No lightning bolt down for me. And so she says, Well, if touching it isn't bad, I might as well eat too. And it gets a person messed up, and that's a problem with chumras in general. And I gave a share yesterday to, to a lot of people in yeshiva uh, on music, and, and in general, how to learn some music. I, I encourage people to take a um, to try to keep Hashem's Torah in the best possible way, um, but be wary of chumras of being too stringent uh, that could that could uh, distort. I mean, the classic example of a stringency is, let's say, somebody who wants to take on. Even more than just a minimal tosefis Shabbos, which is a sugi in halacha, but you really should take in Shabbos early. Let's say a guy is taking on extra early Shabbos. Uh, halachically, okay, but more than is absolutely really necessary, according to the postgame. And he yells at his wife and kids, how come you're not ready? And he's got it backwards. This is a chumrah to take on even more Toseth, Shabbos, addition to Shabbos, but yelling at your wife and kids is a disaster. It messes up Shalom Bais. It's so much more fundamental. Somebody's priorities are really off. That's what Rabbi Chiyah as well. He teaches us that there are three midos tovos by Israel, Three good qualities the Jewish people are known for. Do you know this? is another famous bit from Rabbi he, the last one I'm going to bring. They are considered, get these, bishonim rachmanim v'gomle chassadim. This is what we are. This is what characterizes us. We're bishonim, anybody? Concerned. We, we can feel shame in a good way. We know that when we mess up, we're, it's, it's not good. We're scrupulous. That, that's, that's maybe a better way of doing it. We are so we're Shanim We are rachmanim. Merciful. We're merciful. Uh, we're gomel chasadim. Um, we, we give. We we're kind. We, we do. do. We're bishanim. Get these words. It's a good mantra to have in your you know if you want to put up your calendar wall saying bishanim rachmanim v'gomel chasadim. Um, I remember once. Years ago, going on, a, well, how do I describe You'll know what I'm talking about right away. It was on Jerusalem Day. And we were marching down to the Kosel, and um, I was with a group of people who were, let's say, of the more right wing political persuasion in Israel. And they started, like, starting up with the Arab you know, guys can get sometimes very tough, very abrasive and hostile and yelling things and so on. And I remember thinking, hmm, this does not sound like Rabbi Hi is teaching. Baishonim, Rachmanim, Gomei chassadim they their ways of reacting. It's not that not the Torah tells us to be pacifists. Sometimes you have to fight a war. But they were doing more than they were posturing in a kind of a machoism, kind of a kind of a, of a manner. I, and I was thinking, this is the quality. We're the descendants of Avram Yitzchak and Yaakov—these kind, fine, gentle individuals. Cold, right? We say drachecha. What do we say? Drachecha darche. Noam, no. it's ways. The ways of Torah are ways of pleasantness. Something that Jews don't always internalize enough. We have, we have to, we have to, we have to manifest this in our actions. In the same chevra of these late tana'im, borderline early amoraim, together with Aviyoshayr Rabbi Yechiya, we meet a great figure by the name of Rabbi Yannai. Uh, not to confuse with the, the predecessor Yannai who's a terrible person. Rabbi Yannai is one of the great people. Actually, there are three. The three figures we find in Chas, but the first one, and they're probably related, they're probably fathers, grandson, and son and grandson, no, grandson and grandson. Uh, this Rabbi Anay has a great main based mate, It's called the Be'i Rabbi It's located just south of Tsvas in Akhbara. Um, I have a, oh, I, oh, it's not on my website anymore. I took it down. My previous version of my website, I had a, a picture of my son, Yanai next to the sign going down to his kever for Abiyana. This is the one that we named our son for, so I'm kind of into this name. I'm into this personality. You name people, name your kids for tzaddikim. And then uh, that, that has a big big iba- impact on them. So he was, among other distinctions, oh, you're, you're pretty good, yeah. in good, good shape. Um, so the, uh, he was the primary teacher of Rabbi Yochanan and Rav. Rabbi Yochanan, we keep talking about, the most... Mention Amora. Most mentioned person in all of Shaz, by far. Um, and Brav, who's the founder, really the leading founder of the big boon in Bavil, the beginning of the Torah generations uh, in Bavel in a, in a significant way. Uh, so Rabbi Anayi was, his, was their teacher. Um, he, he also Rabbi Chanina ben bar was a teacher of Rabbi Yochanan. A couple stories about Rabbi Anayi. One of them is there was a passing rochel, some kind of a salesman, a perfume salesman, a chemist, he had, he had uh, fragrances that he sold. And, um, and he said, I have the drug of life, the Sam Hachaim. And Raviyana was intrigued, he said, well, what is the drug of life? And the Rochel enlightens him, and he says, it's this pasuk. What's the pasuk? Mi ha'ish chayim. It's from this episode that the Chafetz Chaim himself, the the the, 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 the Mr. takes his name for his safer. Mi'a Yisha Chaim, right? The one who desires life. Um, what does he have to do to desire life? Litzor, l'shon Meira Usfasecha midaber mirma. Keep your tongue from speaking badly. Guard your guard yourself from, from from saying nasty things. It's the primary source of the halachos of Lashonhara. hara. And that's the drug of life. If you're careful not to speak lashon hara, among other things, you will fulfill Rabbi principle of being a baishan, a Rahman, and a gomel chasodim. Um, and 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 uh, interest and Rabbi excuse I me, mean, Rabbi Yanai takes it to heart, and uh, he understands this is the key. It's interesting; I've never seen this connected. But I have another uh, source that talks about the great mystic Rav Chaim Vital. Fast forward; we're now in we're now in the 16th century spots. Um, Rav Chaim Vital used to follow his Rebbe, the Arizal, around to the different graves in Sadiqim. And he tells the story of once going down with, Rabbi, um, with the Arizal to the grave of Rabbi Chia. And Rabbi, Rabbi Yana, uh, Re, uh, the Arizal could connect to the, to the souls of the dead. And he gets a message from Rabbi Yanai. Rabbi Yanai tells him, this one that's with you, referring to Rav Chaim Vital, um, tell him to be very, very careful of Shmir Salasham. Perhaps it was connected to this Gemara, but this, is you should know, these, uh, this is one of the early sources of Hilchos This Hara, this particular, this particular uh, section here. Every Arab Shabbos, another story of viana every Arab Shabbos, he would, he would wrap himself in Shabbos dress and go out and say, Boli Chala, Boi This Gemara becomes the basis for the line in L'Chadodi that we sing that was also written by the Me'kubali, one of the Qubale in Rabbi Shlomo al kabets um, come the queen, come the queen. This is the earliest source for the minhag of Kabbalah Shabbos. This is the earliest source. Kabbalah Shabbos, which seems to emanate from spot as late as the 16th century, but this gemara is the primary source of it when Rabbi Yana would go out into the field and, and uh, wrap himself in special Shabbos dress and say, Boi Chala, Boi um, In Pirkei Avos, Rabbi Yana teaches us one of the most important fan- foundational ideas with regards to what's called theodicy, which is a fancy word for a simple topic, why it seems to us that bad things happen to good people and good things happen to bad people? In Hebrew, it's called sadik viralo, rasha yeah. betovlo. You ever heard, learned this topic before? Yeah. Suffering in the world and why it seems not fair. Yeah. So what is what do we say about it? Why does it appear to us that uh, you know good people suffer unnecessarily, and uh, and bad people seem to prosper? comes Rabbi Yana, and he teaches what some say are the most, is the most fundamental principle of suffering and how we're supposed to understand the world. He says in Pirkei Avos, <laughs> It's not in our hands. Neither the apparent tranquility or the, or the, or the, uh, the good fortunes that befall the, the wicked, nor the suffering that befalls the righteous. And what he's saying is, that fundamentally, you've got to realize this is all up to Kurdish Baruch. Hu, and it's a variation on what you just quoted earlier. Lazarus saying ha- Hashem has his ways of working. I sometimes think about it in this way. The Peshat is, you know, sometimes we perceive something as really bad while it's happening. And then years later, we look back on that negative experience and we say, wow, that was really a blessing in disguise. And if I didn't have that bad thing happen to me, I would never have grown. I never would have become, you know, whatever the mensch I became. Uh, the feeling that you have—you ever have this association? Sometimes people with, let's say, physical disabilities, you ever, uh, this in my experience, often happens. It's not—I can't make it too much of a generalization—but often people who've endured tremendous hardship are quality people, and there's something in them that—it's it, Dafka through the suffering that there's a certain profundity, a certain understanding of the human experience that you don't necessarily find elsewhere. Like Holocaust survivors. Sometimes, not always, no. not always, but sometimes, and a pattern almost emerges, and I'm claiming that often these things are blessings in disguise, and conversely, think of, think of like a, you know, somebody who's really wealthy, I guess in the modern world we would say, the Greek world certainly would say, wealth is like reward in this world, they're so lucky, they got everything, they got all the money, and then think of people, people we actually know in, in the world, in the celebrity culture, and how deeply miserable the money has left them. Pe- kids who grew up in the lap of luxury, and have no appreciation of anything that they have because they can have everything and they don't want any of it. right? So it's not, we don't really understand these things and it's presumptuous people to say it's not fair. We know Kaddish Baruch Hu loves us and takes care of us and each of us are given a certain portion and Rabbi Anayi teaches us to accept that lovingly. Uh, Rabbi's students... Include not just the, the these these figures, but they are the early generations of the Amoraim. Some of the great names that will that we hear all over Shas, and we just in our own first chapter of Makos have certainly heard all of these names. Um, they include in Bavel Rav and Shmuel, Rav and Shmuel, who are going to be the leaders of the first generation of Bavel Amoraim. Uh, they're accompanied also by another great figure. Maybe you hear a little bit less about him, but he's he's significant. His name is Levi. In Eretz Yisrael, um, we're going to meet Rabbi Yochanan, and the question about Reish Lakish, if he was uh, if he was included among Rabbi's students, there is an idea that he may have been. After he made Shuva, he may have been among this cadre, this inner circle of Rabbi's students. Um, Rabbi Yochanan and Reish Lakish say so clearly. Reish Lakish knew Rabbi Yehuda They say they answer: How were they Zoha in learning Torah? How did they merit learning Torah? They said because once we saw the little finger that Reb Nasi kept covered most of the time. Once we saw his little finger uncovered, because we saw his little finger uncovered, we became great in Torah. Okay. Enigmatic statement, but it's similar to I knew you were going to get it. I knew you going to get it. Say it, Aaron. You got it. Good. What did Reb Nasi say? How did he? What was his source of greatness in Torah? He once saw Redmayr's backside, and they're conveying very deep things that are, that are much more worthy of analysis than what I can go into right now, but the idea that the earlier generations were on such a an unfathomably high level, you know, I only saw his backside, I saw his little pinky, I saw his little pinky and that gave me some greatness, right? How much more we today, you know, if we if we learn some of these stories, we see some of the greatness of these earlier generations, how much more we can understand. Uh, Parallel Gemara and Chulin tells a story about Rabbi Yochanan as a student who once saw Rabbi teaching Rav. Are you keeping track of all these names? They're big names. Rabbi Yudanossi was teaching Rav from Bovell, and as he watched them learning Torah, he saw literally sparks of fire flying between their mouths. And he said, I didn't understand a word of it. I knew it was really great. I've had that experience too. I sometimes, you ever sit on a sheer that's way beyond your abilities? It's a good experience. You should do it. Go go sit over by the mirror one day and just listen to some of these Tommy Dech Chachamim go at it. You want to understand what they're talking about, but that doesn't mean it's a lost experience. It's all going into your neshama. Um Amorim. Amorim, we roughly date this period of Amorim. Let's say we started, we would start at 200, 220 of the Common Era. We would say it comes to an end approximately near the end of the, um, of the 5th century, about 475 in the Common Era. Um, so the Mishnah is completed near the end of the 2nd, early 3rd century, and I'll bring you back to a source we cited at the very beginning of, the, of, of history, beginning of time, beginning of our class. It's the Gemara and Avodah that tells us that they were, of the 6,000 years of history, the Torah says there's 6,000 years of history. Um, these 6,000 years parallel to the six days of the week leading up to Shabbos. Shabbos, of course, metaphorically, will be the end of days, times of Mashiach. We're apparently approaching those very quickly, whether we realize it or not. So in the first six millennia, which parallel the six days of the week, the first two, the second two, and the last two are each units. Do you remember this? The first two represent, the first is, is, is Tovavo. As Brashish Bar-Lakim Tovo, it's chaos. Until when, what is the end of, what is the end of the first third of history? Avram Avinu. Avram Avinu, because all those 20 generations was the first third of history. Because they lived such long lives. Do the math. You can look it up in the timeline. Right, so that's the first, that's the first third of history. That's chaos, because without Torah, you don't have order. The next third of history, from Avram Avinu, down to, I gave it away, Rebuda Nasi, 2,000 years, is Tyrena. Tarsina, okay? Um That's enlightenment, that's when we finally open our eyes, we learn Torah, we understand what our role is in this world, and from this period, we now begin from the time of the Mishnah, we begin the period that we're very much uh, in and nearing the end of, is considered the time of Yemosa Mashiach. These are the pre-Messianic days culminating in the Messiah and the final redemption. So, uh, so good, so we're two thirds of the way through the class, but not really because it gets good as it goes on, so I have a lot more to teach about the uh, more, more recent days, but all, all of it in its time. So the Amorim. Uh The elderly Rabban Gamliel, the son of Rebbe, is now the new Nossi. Remember this Nasius that's been wide, winding its way down in history, starting with Hillel and going down? He's the new Nossi in the early Amoronic period, but um, it, it's very brief because he was already an old man when his father died. Um, it's this Rebbe Gamliel who teaches us in Perkiavos, Yofet Tamator in Derech Eretz, which has a couple of explanations. It's good to learn Torah and have a parnassah or alternately have good midos. Um, his son, Rebbe Yehuda Nisiyah, is a more significant figure. We hear a lot more about him. Rebbe Yehuda Nisiyah is the grandson of Rebbe, and he is um, indeed part of the first generation of Amoraim. From this point though, they realize, and this is the break in history, we're gonna have several breaks like this. You got Tanaim into Amoraim. After the Amoraim, short period begins of the Savuraim. After the Saburaim, Gaonim. After the Gaonim, Rishonim. Rishonim, and then finally our these Ahronim, the last ones. So it's not like they wake up one morning and they say, hmm, we're Amoraim. Uh, it was a process, was a gradual phase in, but they're aware of the decline of the times. To signify this, they retire the term that they used for Nasi. How did we used to call all of our nasiim officially? Rabban. Rabban was, the, was, the, was the, Rabban Gamliel, Rabban Yehuda Nasi. They don't use that anymore. Now it's, now he's Rebbe Yehuda Nasiya, and then he'll be followed by his son. Guess what his name is? In this case, Gamliel. Yeah, another another Gamliel. He's the he's the sixth of the of the Rebbe Gamliels. Um, a couple of figures who are so uh, so inspiring. These figures. One is named Rabbi Yushua Ben Levi. Again, late Tanna, early Amora. Reb Yeshua Ben Levi, is, is is he lives in Lod near the airport. Today, he's called the Bala he knew all of the agadic learnings. Agudata are usually those stories or those sayings uh, that we learn about. Um, he had chavruta private chavruta with Eliyahu Navi. He's also he he is several Gemaras where he's often quoted in his praise, elaborate praise of Eretz Yisrael and it's it's uh, it's godless, its greatness. Uh, the last daf of the first chapter of Makos gets into the schulios of Eretz Yisrael and somebody asked me this morning in my class, oh, is this where we learn the greatness of Eretz Yisrael? I said, this barely gets at it. You should see how how Chazal prays the greatness of the land and Rabbi Rabbi Yashua ben Levi is one of these. um, It's Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi who has that pinkas, has that great notebook with all astrological signs. I refer to it all the time. It's the end of the and Shabbos, uh, where they figure out who, based on when you're born, what you're like. And what your predilections are in life and worthy worthy of looking into if you're interested, Kufnu and Vavu Aleph. Shabbis, I'm sorry. Shabbos kufnun uh, Kufnu and Vavu Mudalef. Uh he teaches in the Glorin of Avotazara, Baruch ba in Briosa. Hashem doesn't send misionos challenges to people that they can't handle. People ask sometimes, do you have a source for that? This is this is a source, a couple other sources too, but this is a primary source. Um, meaning, if you got suffering related to our discussion on theodicy a few minutes ago, if bad things happen to you or they seem to happen to you, one basic assumption that we make is that a Kodesh he loves you, he's not going to torture you. Obviously, he felt that you, he calibrated this particular piece of, this challenge or this, this area of suffering to you in your lifetime and the way that you can do it because he felt you could, you could manage this. doesn't mean it's going to be easy, but Hashem doesn't just um, flagellate us for no reason. Rabbi Yisroel Ben Levi teaches us. In Pirkei Avos, he has, he has a brysa there. He says every day a baskul descends from Chorv. Where's Horev? Chorv is another name for Mount Sinai. Descends from Mount Sinai, Chorev. It's the name of a classic work by Rabbi Shinsha Rafal Hirsch of Germany in the nineteenth century, <laughs> Chorev. So every day the baskul, the heavenly voice, comes from Chorv and declares, "Oy lahem le lebrios mi elbona shel Woe to the creatures, of, to the human beings, of the human race, on the insult of Torah. Every day, he says, the, the, a voice comes down to Arsena and says, woe to the human race on the insult of Torah. And you know who's going to get it especially hard? People who know better and still don't do it. Which means, if you didn't know this two minutes ago, and I've now uh, spoiled it for you by teaching it to you, you're in bigger trouble than you were two minutes ago. But as I say, I like being the troublemaker. He says, anybody who's not Osik Bataira, what is Osik Bataira? We say this in our Brahm but what are they doing busy in, Delving in Torah? Delving to our certainly learning, but it's more than having that. Your having your mind on Torah all the time, doing Torah, living, breathing, everything is Torah. Everything is somehow connected. Even having a, a conversation with somebody, but there's Torah there. The way I'm doing, I'm trying to be kind and considerate. That's also Torah, The way I go about my life. So anybody who's not Osik Bhattyra is called nozuf. He's, he's, re- he's rejected by Akadosh Baruch Hu. He teaches us um, that the luchos were given, and when you have the Ten Commandments, when you have the Torah, don't read charus el It liberates you. Many other very famous, very, very important um, halachas we learned from Yeshua Ben-Levi. His colleague was Rabbi Hanina. Um, he is actually the head of the Sanhedrin now that Rabbi passes away. The Sanhedrin, anybody remember where the Sanhedrin is located right now? Not yet, almost. The second to last, the penultimate stop of the Sanhedrin. After Beit Sharim, was in Sipori for the last 17 years of, of Rebbe's of life. And then Rabbi Chanina leads the Sanhedrin up in Sipori. It's when he dies that the Sanhedrin moves down to Tavaria after Rebbe Yochanan. It, Rabbi Chanina, you know. He teaches us in Gemar Brachos, Talmadei Chochami Mar bim Shalom Ba'olam. The increased peace in the world. Shene'emar. Rav Shalom B'naiich. Uh, great is the peace to your sons. Alti Don't read ella. We say this in Tefillah. the builders. They're building the world. Those who are learning Torah. That's Rabbi Hanina. He says in Gemara Barachos One of the most fundamental teachings of Chazal. Rabbi Hanina teaches us, Hakol yirat Which can you explain it? It's Such an important idea.
1: Everything is God's
0: hands except for fear of God. And practically, the way I paraphrase this is, um, Hashem to the world. Who's going to be healthy? Who's going to be wealthy? How are you going to, you know, all the circumstances, what Rav Lazarus, to apparently, Akiva, you just quoted, say, speaking about Hashkacha Pratis, Hashkacha Klawis, all that said. If it's all set, then what am I doing in this world? What's my choice? No, he gives me freedom of choice to make moral decisions. My job is to do the right thing except for fear of heaven. Fear of heaven is the ability to choose wisely. Most people don't do that. Rabbi Chanina teaches us we're supposed to. He also says, which is another discussion I'm not going to get into. Back in Bavel, the Jews in Bavel had been around. but When they last left our heroes there, they were kind of beneath the radar. Because Hanilai and Hachinai, these bandits, remember these bandits a couple hundred years earlier, had made a nuisance of themselves and the Parthians went and took revenge against the Jewish community and they were oppressed. It was this bad period now. The period of the Atenaim, we don't hear so many, we don't hear about so many great Jews. There are a few of them, but not so many great Jews. But we read about Nossan Abavli, the Avos Rabbi Nassan. But uh, Babel was not a center, and now it's going to re-emerge. So let's go back to Babel for a second. And so tomorrow, if somebody sends me an email, I'll, I'll love you to pieces more than I already do. Uh, send me an email, I'll get you the chart of the Amoraim, and I'll get you a map of Babel, because we're going to go to Babel a lot now as it emerges as increasingly the center of Jewish life, after Bar and after, after Israel wanes in the, in the distance, um, Babel will emerge, so you, you should at least know the geography, you should know, you should have a picture in your mind. Um, how is Babel described? The Medjus describes it by referring to the Pasuk and Shirashirim, Kishoshana It's like a rose among the thorns. That's Babel, because Babel, if you remember the people like Nebuchadnezzar, they're bears, they're gross they're foul, kind of, in their, in their, in their midos. Bavel's not known for any, any, uh, any great individuals other than the Jews themselves. We're there. They're like the roses among the thorn bushes, uh, and they stand out, especially in their Mysim tovim. We know that um, there are great centers in, in Bavel in the shul called Chaf Vyosiv, which some people say is a district, it's a marnida, but others uh, call it a shul itself. It was one of the earliest shuls that we ever hear about. Remember, they used the rocks and dirt from Eretz Yisrael to build the shul as a a reminder that they should not stay permanently in Babel, but they'll go back eventually. So it's now the large shul in the central city of Nahar It was destroyed and rebuilt, Mara Megillah tells us. There's also a couple other early shuls. Chutzal we heard about. Um, Daniel's shul, remember Daniel in the lion's den? So Daniel, his shul in, in a place called Barnash, our, our, our old shuls that are rallying points now, great, you know, icons for the Jews of Bavel. We know that there's a yeshiva in Pumbedisa. There was a student of Rabbi Eliezer, Rabbi Hanina, a different Rabbi Hanina, who made it semi-prominent. Pumbedisa hasn't yet emerged. It's gonna be really prominent. It's gonna be one of the central addresses, but we know that it exists at this point. We know that in Shaf Vyasiv, this shul, the local Babylonians make mischief. They put up an image, a tselem dmuz of the king, a big statue of the king in the shul. Can't do that. That's our synagogue. We don't make, we don't make these slumim, It's a votazara. And the Gedolim and the masses of Jews continue to use the shul. Are they allowed to? Yeah, they are. They quote Rebbe Gamliel who taught them it's not a problem. It was a shul first. We defined it as such. Hu bab see, it came into my possession. They can't, through their harsh decrees, nullify the legitimacy of our shul. So they had nothing to do with the statue, but they, go to, we went, around their, they went around about their business still in using the synagogue. Rav was in Eretz Israel. He learned by his uncle, Chavivi, remember Chavivi in the Gemara and Makos, his uncle, Rabbi Chia, and he returns to Bavo. And when he comes back to Bavo, he finds them doing some strange things, including he finds a really odd minhad. The Jews in Bavel were actually saying, it was Rosh Chodesh, and they were actually saying Hallel. on Rosh Chodesh. Hallel. Odd. And he doesn't agree. But in the end, and he's a whole sheet to why he doesn't agree, it's the Mar-Megillah that you probably, you probably remember. Um, he wants to nullify it, but because they did it carefully, they did it with which means they didn't do full Hallel, they did half Hallel, skipping a couple of the chapters of Tehillim, um, and their motivation was to do it as a zeichel, and mikdash, as a memorial for the base of mikdash. He saw that they were well-motivated, and he didn't nullify the minhag. And minhagavosam, they were doing what their forefathers had done, so it was legitimate. So we say chodesh too, based on this gemara. Bavel. Remember Bavel? is a very tranquil place. Part of that is the natural topography, the geography. It's deep in a valley. It's secluded that's why we were away from the Christians, away from the Romans, uh, spared the wrath there. In Bavel, we don't have any sectarianism. There are no tzedukim or baitusim, no Minim, no Christians. None of these people there to, to annoy us, to bother us. They had semi-autonomy. The Jews were given, and Nebuchadnezzar already allowed them, and, and, and really for most of Babylonian history, they had their own infrastructure. It's shadows up. We're going to see a similar situation in Eastern Europe. In the um, late Middle Ages, the Vad HaArba Aratzos, the Council of the Four Lands, where in Poland, for example, the Jews were given a certain semi-autonomy to handle their own affairs among Jews. And the guy said, yeah, you guys deal with yourself. You can collect taxes and do your own thing. Of course, you pay us some taxes too, but you're kind of in charge of having a favor. Kedisha and Kashrus and and, and like that. So that's great. It's not true that our history is uniformly bleak. There were certain bright spots. Bubble is certainly one of them. Oh, and, and when did they receive Mishnah? It, well, because, I mean, they, they there is a open channel of communication in so, this entire period between and we're going to see how it opens up even more so in the early generations of the MRI yes. between Bubble and Eretz Israel. They traveled by way of the Fertile Crescent, back and forth. It's we're pretty, going to meet We're some people to, somebody to pretty, do this. So, bad, so yeah, yeah, no, no, they were all in part of it and increasingly it'll become central and whereas they're, <coughs> as it were, drawing sustenance from Eretz Yisrael, as long as there's still a Sanhedrin, Sanhedrin's the one that fixes the new, the new, uh, uh, the new months and the Iborshana, the, the leap years and so on, but we're going to see very soon the center of gravity is going to shift from Eretz Yisrael to Bavel. Which is why it's good to take a look and, and, and consider what's going on in Bavel. There's a leader. Who's the political leader of Bavel? It's going to last, this institution's going to be around for over a thousand years. The race Galusa. Galusa. The race Galusa is the figurehead. He descends from Yechonia, which means effectively he descends from um, David. Yes. David and the male line, meaning Mashiach, is going to come from race Galusa. Pay attention to this guy. i got some great stories about some of the really famous race Galusa and some of the uh, intrigue that took place in this position in Bavel. Um, they would lead the bastin in Bavel. Now, in Bavel, like any Galist, they don't have smicha. So they can't, we saw this also, they can't try, there's no, this is Mamash, this is exactly what we're holding in Makos, there's no din in the Nefashos, you can't do death sentences, there's also no dina knasos. can't do fines. They can try monetary things. We just talked about this this morning, right? Rava was probably ju- uh, judging a monetary case. The Gemara Tidies did something really interesting. In Bavel, they only kept one tiny sibor of Tisha Ba'av. They didn't fast in Asar or, or the other, what's called minor fast. Because they were so, they, their life was great. They had such an abundance of rain and such plenty, uh, in, in addition to great bodies of natural sweet water, that they that they didn't see a need to fast. It's an exception to the rule and kind of interesting, Gemara there, but of course, in other diasporas, we most certainly do accept the fast, and that's the, that's the present Minhat. Nahar Daw, Nahar Dea, sometimes pronounced, sits on the Euphrates River, Nahar Pras, in this wide, lush, prosperous valley, and there's a lot of. If you I mean, learn this now, with the understanding that as Rosh Hashem you're going to make your you're going to be learning Talmud for the rest of your lives, and a lot of these stories, this is going to become part of you. And so it's it's, it's really helpful to have a visualization, a picture in your mind of what bubble's like. So Chazal describe it as this big, beautiful, prosperous area, almost Nahardaya's is almost exclusively populated by Jews, six hundred thousand of them, according to Marne Ruvin. It's even called Ir Hayuhudim, that's the Jewish city. I picture Brooklyn, kind of, you know, maybe Jayburg. you know, a few. Toronto in some parts, maybe Be- the Bayhere section of Toronto. It's the Jewish city. We we, we, we have something like this, but Nahar was very much like this. Nahar even is given quasi-Eretz Israel status. So it, whereas in Eretz Israel you have a special exception, you're not allowed to have guard dogs because they could they could hurt people, but in Eretz Israel they allowed it. Uh, you can let loose your guard drives tonight. And they allowed the same thing with Nahar Um There's a great city called Machoza. mahoza which also had 600,000 people, traveled through Machoza, like Grand Central Station. It was very centrally located. So everybody traveled through Machoza. Um And many of the non-Jews who traveled through saw the Jews in Machoza. And they're so impressed, they converted. That's the Gemara Kedushin. It also has quasi Israel um, status. They allow, for example, raising, um, excuse me, they, 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 they prevent people from raising behemadaka, no small animals, because they were concerned about theft, um, and they have a, they, they, they separated tithe. They made tithing on their, on their food. They separated trumos and maestros on a Durbanan level. Um, this is really interesting. The Babylonians were very different in their personal habits than, the, than the, uh, the Jews from Aaron's Israel. They ate and dressed differently, and each of them were disgusted by the other's customs. I mean, if you ever see juice today, sometimes you go over to somebody else who you know, has a totally different country. So say, what's this? Oh, it's stuffed kishka. You know, animal intestine. Oh, uh, pass the uh, you know, Coca-Cola, please. No, we don't eat stuffed intestines. So, you have that. so they, they had that in the Gemara where they didn't like each other's foods. Um, Rav Safra, for example, from Baville travels to Eretz Israel, and, and he says, oh, this is delicious. Thank you so much. What do you have here? And he starts eating it, and they say, yeah, it's chicken that's been boiled for several days. And he almost throws it up on the spot, but they give him three-year-old wine, and that somehow settles his stomach. I think the ideas that are conveying the different cultures reflect a different sensibility. If you're Babylonian, that's one way of living. If you're in Eretz it's a different way of living, a different kind of a life. And we're going to see more of this. I'm just kind of painting a scene here. They didn't even, their foods themselves were different. So Rabbi Yochanan, who lived in Eretz um, didn't like the Babylonians had a famous dish that they called Kuta Chabavli, which is kind of egg yogurt mixture, and he recalls once eating it and spitting it out. He couldn't digest it. We know that the Inbavel, the Tamanich chachamim, used to dress um, in these regal, beautiful white garments that they wrapped around themselves as a way of showing covenant to Torah. Do you ever see the old pictures, beautiful pictures of, not that old really, of Sfardi Rabbanim uh, before the modern era? In those beautiful, can you picture? We're talking about these like white wrapped garments, also headdresses of sorts, right? That that was sounds like it's a similar description of the and of how they used to dress in in, in Bavel. Now, l- lest we get it, l- lest we praise it too much. Bavel was definitely not gar- the Garden of Eden. We wa- remember when Bavel, one of the one of the virtues was that they had pure yichas, because Ezra left all the all the purely uh, identified people, that had waned already. And at this time, of uh, the Babylonian Talmud, we find that there actually are evil cities with Jews in them. Not everybody's on, 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 a, on a great level. There's a place called Birsa Distaya uh, that was put into, and it was excommunicated, the whole place, because the people were, didn't behave themselves. A place called Narash near Surah. Even Pumbedisa, which be emerges, is going to emerge as a great place, there were, there were well known shady figures that lived there, Gamar Huling tells us. But because there's so much Tyra in Bavel. The uh, Chazal tell us that it has quasi-Eretz Israel status. Do you know that you're in Eretz Yisrael? You came to Eretz Yisrael? I don't think we have this in the yeshiva literature, but um, now that you're here, you're all staying, right? For yeah, your yeah. lives. Because once you're here, you can't uh, leave. Yeah, you need a heter to leave here. It's the, I always call it the proverbial Hotel California. Check in anytime you like. But um, that's actually true. There are heter. How can you leave Eretz Yisrael? I think you buy if the Torah is superior in Chutzlar, it's if money, here yeah, which in Yeah, which is subjective. That doesn't mean you have to be wealthy, but just you can't, you're going to starve to death in Eretz Yisrael. What else? Lavia. A Levaya? like a funeral? Not so clear. Not so clear that's ground for living. <laughs> you realize that if you, you should have this Kavana, every minute you're in Eretz Yisrael is, is a huge mitzvah. And every right. mitzvah you keep while in Eretz Yisrael counts as the full-fledged mitzvah in a way that is not parallel, you have to keep Shabbos in Chutzlar, don't get me wrong, but it's not the full Shabbos, the Shabbos that you keep in Eretz Yisrael is real Shabbos, wait, wait, every mitzvah you do in Eretz Yisrael is, real, is the real mitzvah we have a Kibud Haveim it's the Gemara and Kedushin talks about that, it's a little ambiguous it seems that it's, it's questionable whether you can leave to honor your parents Probably not. You probably can't leave. Maybe there are exceptions to that rule. So just like you can't leave Eretz Yisrael Stam, you can't just go. I know people actually asked Shiloh. They wanted to go on a family vacation for two weeks just to go back and visit the family in the old country. And they asked the posting post because, no, you're not allowed to go. Okay. I mean, I'm sure that was individual and that was their case. Maybe other people would have, would have another Pesach, but that was, that was their told. So just like it's usher to leave Eretz Yisrael, so too there was usher to leave bubble for an inferior diaspora. If you're in Bavel, you're, you're there. You're in a, a central Torah location. Last thing I want to talk about today is this great figure we've mentioned of a little bit of Rav, who emerges as the, um, really one of the icons and one of the central Torah figures of this period in early Bavel, early Amora Amor Bavel. Uh, Rav is sometimes called Rav Abba Aricha. Some say that he may be the author of the Zohar. Rav makes Surah. Surah was a place of Torah. But Rav makes Surah into Surah. What do I mean by that? Surah becomes not only a leading yeshiva, it becomes one of the leading yeshivas in all of, for all the Jewish people for the next thousand years or so, give or take. Is it in that one city for the whole thousand? No. And what happened is it was not consistent. We'll see this. Surah, it's predominantly in that city, but with the, with the various persecutions that will follow over the course of a thousand years, um, Surah and Pumbadisa will actually move, um, let's say later on, to Baghdad, <laughs> But they'll keep the names. Kind of like the Mir. It's from Mir, Poland, but it retains the name. So Sura becomes, but it's it's an extension of the original yeshiva of Sura, and Rav is considered the founding Rav of this great yeshiva of Sura. Rav, um, Baraki just referred to this earlier, Rav had a unique status among Amoraim Rav Tana Ufali. He's considered to be on the level of the Tana, potentially he can take them on and have a legitimate um, have, have an argument with them in a way that Amorim, with one more exception, Rabbi Yochanan, uh, ordinarily can't do that. Are they both the students of the Or Rabbi I think the better answer for that, I mean, that's fair. You could say they're both students of Rabbi, but I would say it this way. I would say I think that they could do that because Rav was Rav and Rabbi Yochanan was Rabbi Yochanan. And when you hear of their stature and their, 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 their immense... Uh, righteousness and what they did for Klal Yisrael, maybe that, that in itself will explain it. He was originally orphaned, and that's why he left Bavel. He was born in Bavel, but he left to Eretz Yisrael to be raised by his uncle, Rabbi Chia, when his parents were no longer there for that. Um, and he'll come back to Bavel later on, after Rabbi dies. And he comes back. his We often think of Rav and Shmuel, and they were close associates, and two, they were co-godoling. We'll, we'll learn about Shmuel tomorrow. But... Um, Shmuel is much younger than Rav, so they're not they're not peers per se. Um, and, and but they do both return to Babel together and herald a new beginning for the Babylonian Torah community. They were the undisputed Gedolim, Rav and Shmuel. But even so, in their humility, they were always very careful to greet the Reish Galusa, the the, the political leader, his name was Roshila, every day always show kavod to the authority. After all, remember the Reish Galusa descends from David and they gave him the proper authority. Maybe he'll be melech one day. The way they would sit, because pay attention to the seating structure, the Sanhedrin was always very careful. You sit in relative hierarchy. So Rav would always sit in the first seat. But Shmuel deferred to Rav Shila. He let the Reish Galusa sit in the second seat and Shmuel only took the third seat, Yerushalmi tells us. But Rav deferred to Shmuel. Uh, like, no, you first. No, you first. Uh, how did Rav defer to Shmuel? Shmuel was the Rav in Nahardah, this great Torah center. And Rav said, you stay here. I'm going I'm to go to Surah, which was not significant. I'm going to go down to Surah. Um, and when he moved south to, south to the city of Surah, uh, which was a large city of Jews, but was not known to be a Makom Taira since the days of Hanilai. Uh most Jews had moved up to Nahardah and to Machoza, um, so now Rav comes to Sura and makes it this great place. It becomes so great that students were drawn to him from far. Everybody comes flocking to Sura. They want to learn with Rav. They want to learn with his gadol. They ask him at one point, Rebbe, we're not sure. Is the journey too dangerous? Maybe we shouldn't come. What we see emerging is actually, um, many of them want to learn by Rav in Sura, but they also want to learn by Shmuel up in Nahardas. So they go back and forth. And they ask, is this too dangerous. Maybe we shouldn't do this. Shmores Shecha, You can't put yourself into a makom sakana. He answers no. mitzvah If you're a messenger to do a mitzvah, you're not injured, right? If you're learning Torah, if you're doing mitzvahs, you're okay. You're on your way to learn Torah. Hashem will take care of you. And as we say, the surah becomes a center all the way down to the to Rav Haigaon at the end of the Gaonic period. Around I said a thousand years. eight hundred years more likely around a thousand a thousand of the Common Era. Rav teaches a lot of famous, world famous things and we'll end with a few of his statements and then we'll, we'll pick up tomorrow. In Erkin we see that um, Rav teaches a person should always be osik in Torah and, and mitzvahs. Even shalom lishma, Even if you don't do it, starting for the right reasons. Because you know what? You can't possibly be lishma. How do you even know? Think about this, this logical quandary. Lishma means doing it purely for God, for the heavens. How do you know until you learn Torah, what is l'shem shemayim? You don't even know that. You have to learn Torah to know what it even means to be l'shem shemayim. So you can't possibly start being l'shem shemayim. But here's Rav's very famous, very important teaching. He says, "No, start shalolishma. Start for the wrong reasons, just to learn for whatever reason. Shemitoch shalolishma, ba'lishma. Because insofar as you do it for the wrong reasons, if you if you start, you'll get into the process. Eventually, you'll come to do it l'shem Shemayin. Um The Eliyahu, where Dessler has a qualification, he says, but you have to be in the ballpark. You have to at least desire eventually to get the right motivation. If you're really doing it for the wrong reasons, you won't become you won't come to do it Lishma. You've heard the statement before? Shalolishma Balishma? that's from Rav. He says now you know that. He says, olam al Yimna Adam is Never avoid the base Medrash. Afilu Sha'achas. Even for a, a, a short time, and in fact, Rav was a role model, he, like, david a before him, like Rebbe, like his own teacher, Rebbe Udanasi, he slept shishin nishamim, each day, like a horse would sleep. Sixty breaths, four half-hour intervals. He also, Chazal tells us, never spoke a sicha betela, meaning every conversation was a conversation in Torah. He never spoke about the, who, won, who won the game, as it were. We're in the middle of talking about Rav. We'll pick up tomorrow and talk about Rav and Shmuel and Levi and these, 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 this, this really fantastic generation that, that heralds the beginning of Bavel as a Torah center.